Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. So how good are we at predicting the future? I read an online article about this this past week. Predictions that were made back in 2009, they were 10-year predictions. Things we thought would come true by the end of 2019, okay, by the end of, this, uh, the end of this month, the end of 2019. So let me give you six of those predictions. Let's see how well we did 10 years ago. First one, we said that human cloning would be quite popular by now. You know, we'd see people's duplicates walking around, no big deal, right? You've seen that, right? Well, you know, they say it's happening among celebrities. If you read the the tabloids at the grocery store. Did you know that Beyonce, she actually died in a car accident several years ago, and what you've been seeing is her clone. You didn't know that, did you? So you got to do some reading at Jewel, all right? Here's another prediction made back in 2009 for 2019. The first humans would land on Mars by now. Hasn't happened. And this prediction was actually made by NASA officials. So let's hope they're better scientists than they are prophets, right? Uh, Mount Vesuvius would erupt again. It hasn't happened yet. Now, there are still several weeks left in the month, so it, it could happen if you're planning a vacation. I encourage you, don't go to Naples, Italy between now and the end of the year, all right? Here's a fourth prediction we made back in 2009. The, the, the cult sitcom Friends would come back. How many of you are fans of Friends? Oh, really? You know, I, I, I saw that prediction and I thought to myself, a 10-year run of, you know, Joey and Monica and Phoebe and then 15 years of reruns, I think I've had enough. <laughs> Just saying. Okay, here's another one. Tab, tablets would be history. This was actually made back in 2009, this, this uh, prediction by the CEO of BlackBerry. You, you could Google it on your tablet. <laughs> 164 million tablets sold last year. Here's a final one. The world would come to an end. Now, this was a big deal back in 2009 because we were looking at the end of the Mayan, the ancient Mayan calendar on December 21st, 2012, and many people thought that signaled the end of civilization. And here we still are. Okay, and we're here for a first, the first week of a five-part holiday sermon series that's going to take us through December, and it's called Supernatural. Supernatural. We are studying the miraculous events associated with the birth of Jesus Christ, and today our topic is Bible prophecy. Prophecy. Jesus' birth was predicted accurately and amazingly hundreds of years before it happened. The prophet's Foretold. That's our sermon title for the day. Now, I've selected five of these unbelievable prophecies for us to consider today. So if you got a Bible, hope you brought one of these with you. Turn to Isaiah chapter 7. You'll find it around the middle of your Bible, and you might want to take your outline out as well and just jot down some of the things you learn today about these prophecies. Uh, as you're looking for Isaiah 7, let me say a few words about this Old Testament prophet. Isaiah is considered by many Bible scholars to be the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. His name, Isaiah, means the Lord is salvation. 
And Isaiah preached and he wrote at a very strategic time in the history of God's people. His ministry lasted from 740 B.C. up through 680 B.C. We'll put the timeline up on the screen so uh, you can get sort of a feel for his era. Uh, Israel was actually divided into two countries at this time. There was Israel in the north, they kept the name, and in the south, southern Israel was now called Judah. Okay, and the people of the north, Israel, had become very wicked. And so God was about to punish them by allowing the superpower Assyria to invade and destroy their country. This would happen in 722 B.C. This is a really important uh, Bible date to remember, by the way, as you're reading the Old Testament. 722 B.C., it's when the northern kingdom gets destroyed, not long after Isaiah began his, his ministry. In fact, Isaiah predicted the fall of northern Israel to Assyria. Syria. But Isaiah was also concerned about Judah in the south because he lived in Judah. He lived in Judah's capital city, Jerusalem. And so he warned the people of Judah that they too were guilty of disobeying God, that God was no longer their number one priority. They were worshiping other gods. They were neglecting the poor. They were engaged in sexual immorality. They were dishonest in their business dealings. They didn't care about social injustice. And so Isaiah warned the people of Judah, that if they didn't turn from their sins, God would destroy their country in the same way that northern Israel had been destroyed. Now friends, as we, as we read the pages of the Old Testament, it, it's readily apparent that the people of ancient Israel had this tendency to wander away from God and disregard his commands. Are we any different today? Yeah, I don't think so. And if we're not, are, are we too then in danger of God's punishment sometime in the future? Isaiah would warn, yes. But, but I, Isaiah also tells us about a coming Savior. He prophesies someone who could save us from our sins and their consequences. Now, this Savior would not be born for another 700 years after Isaiah. And so today we're going to take a look at some predictions that Isaiah and several other prophets made about the eventual coming of Jesus Christ. These are supernatural predictions. Supernatural predictions. And here's the first one. Okay, if you're following in your outline, first a prophecy I want us to consider in Isaiah 7 verse 14 is a virgin birth. So Isaiah predicted that one day a virgin, okay, a woman who has never had sex with a man, she would conceive and give birth to a baby, and the baby would be called Emmanuel, a name that means God with us. So if your Bible is open to Isaiah Chapter 7, let me read it to you straight out of the text. And this is probably the most famous of all the Bible prophecies about Jesus' birth. Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God, for these amazing prophecies. 700 years before Christ, this is what's written. Now, let, let me give you some background about Old Testament prophecies in general. 90% of the prophecies that you find in the Old Testament, they make predictions about events that are going to happen in the not-so-distant future. Okay, 90%. In other words, they're not predictions about things that are going to happen at the end of the world. 
That's what we usually think of when we think of prophecies. They're not even predictions about things that are going to happen hundreds of years later at the time of Christ. Now, most of them, 90% of them, are about things that are going to happen within the life of the prophet himself who foretold them, or at most like 100 years, maybe two centuries away. But fairly, fairly soon. However, these same predictions about things that are going to happen in the not-so-distant future, oftentimes there is a two-phase fulfillment, a two-phase fulfillment of these prophecies. They're fulfilled in the coming soon future, but there's also a bigger, grander, ultimate fulfillment sometime way down the road. Now, I was trying to think of a way, an analogy, to help you understand what I've just said. So here's the analogy I came up with. It's kind of lame, but it'll work. Okay, imagine if you would, you're watching a ball game, and before the game starts, the uh, sports reporter is interviewing one of the stars. And she asks him the question, well, how do you feel about today's game? You know, how how do you think you're going to do? And he says, with a bit of bravado, he says, I'm going to clobber the ball. Okay, that's his prediction. That's his prophecy, if you would. So we get into the game, he comes up to bat, and he rips a single, fastball, hits a single into into center field. Now, was that a fulfillment of his prophecy? Did he clobber the ball? You say, well, you know, kind of. I mean, he hit it pretty hard, but on the other hand, it was, you know, it was just a single. I, I, I guess we could say he clobbered it. Now, the next time he comes up to bat, he rips on another fastball. And this one, he sends soaring toward the right field fence, and it continues for 500 feet, an enormous home run. Did he clobber the ball? Yeah, he clobbered the ball. This is the grand fulfillment of his prophecy. Now you say, where, where are you going? with what's, what's the deal between the baseball analogy? What does it have to do with the prophecy of the virgin birth in Isaiah 7.14? What we're talking about, fulfillment that comes in two phases. See, when we read Isaiah 7.14, when we read this prophecy today, we immediately think of the second, the ultimate, the, the home run fulfillment of this prophecy, namely Jesus' birth to the Virgin Mary. You don't get much bigger than that. Mary was this teenage girl engaged to Joseph, but they'd never slept together. So how did Mary the Virgin become pregnant? I mean, that's what Joseph wanted to know, right? God had to send an angel to Joseph to say, Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, what is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. In other words, this is a, this is a miraculous conception. This is from God. You, you remember what Isaiah 7, 14 says, the child's name is to be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Pastor Corey, our, our campus pastor for Streamwood is going to preach about the virgin birth next weekend. That's the ultimate fulfillment of the Isaiah 7:14 prophecy. That's the home run. However, there was also a preliminary, not so distant fulfillment of this prophecy, kind of like the baseball player's single in his first at bat. See, when we read Isaiah 7:14, when we read it in its immediate context, If your Bible's still open, take a look at the context. There's no mention of Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus here. There's nothing said about a stable in Bethlehem, nothing about shepherds gathered around a manger. I mean, it's just the basic story of a dude named King Ahaz. What's going on here? Let me tell you the backstory briefly. Okay, the year is about 735 B.C. Now, remember the timeline. Isaiah starts his ministry 740 B.C., so just five years earlier. 
In 735 BC, he's sent to King Ahaz with a message from God. Okay, King Ahaz is in big trouble at this point in time. He's under siege. Two enemy kings are attacking Judah. Now, now here's the backstory to that. These enemy kings had asked Ahaz to join their alliance. One of the kings was the king of northern Israel. Israel hadn't been destroyed yet. It doesn't get destroyed till 722 BC. The other king is the king of Aram, which is ancient Syria. They come to King Ahaz. They say, we want Judah to join with us in a coalition against Assyria, the superpower of the day. And Ahaz says, uh, no, I don't think so. Not interested. So these two kings turn their guns on Ahaz, on Judah. They, they figure if they can't talk him into joining them, they'll force him into joining, joining them. So Judah's getting pummeled, and God sends Isaiah with a message to King Ahaz. And it's a very comforting message. Ahaz, Isaiah says to Ahaz, good news from God. God's got your back. God's going to take care of those two pesky kings that are attacking you right now. He's going to utterly destroy them. And if you want, God offers to give you a sign. If you want to guarantee that this promise is going to be fulfilled, ask God for a sign and he'll give you a sign. And King Ahaz says, eh, no, I don't need a sign. You know, no need for a sign. Now, on the surface, it sounds kind of pious. It sounds like King Ahaz is saying, well, I'm just going to take God at his word. He doesn't have to give me a sign. But interestingly, when he says this, I don't need a sign, Isaiah gets really angry. In fact, I want you to take a look at the verse just before verse 14, the virgin birth prophecy. Let me read to you the verse right before it, because it's pretty hostile. It says, then Isaiah said, verse 13, hear now, you house of David, he's talking to King Ahaz, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So there. What's he so mad about? Okay, Isaiah knows a little bit more of the backstory. He knows that when these two kings ask Ahaz to join their alliance, you know what King Ahaz did? He went to the king of Assyria. And he said to the king of Assyria, hey, I got two guys who want me to join an alliance against you, but... Mighty king of Assyria, I'm your bud, okay? I'm on your side. I got your back. Will you have my back? And the king of Assyria says, well, oh, sure, okay. So Isaiah knows when he goes to Ahaz and says, God's going to destroy these other kings. Okay, you want a sign from God? And, and Ahaz says, no, I don't need a sign. It's not because he's depending on God. It's because he's depending on who? Assyria. He's depending on Assyria. And that makes Isaiah's blood boil. And he says, no, you will get a sign. Okay, I'm going to give you a sign whether you want one or not. Here's the sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. Now, we know that the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy is Jesus, right? That Mary would miraculously conceive that God would do it. But what about the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy in the days of King Ahaz? Was there a miraculous virgin birth back then too? No. No, here's how it happened. Okay, there was a young unmarried woman in King Ahaz's day who was a virgin at the time that Isaiah spoke these words to the king. 
But shortly after Isaiah left the king's presence, this virgin got married and she and her husband got pregnant, naturally, not miraculously, and they had a baby boy. So the virgin will conceive after getting married and give birth to a son. Now, Isaiah never identifies who this young woman was, but many Bible scholars conjecture it, it, Isaiah was probably describing his second wife. See, his first wife had died. And Isaiah was now engaged to another woman, a virgin, because they hadn't gotten married yet, as he was speaking to King Ahaz. But when he left the king's presence, he got married to his fiancée. They produce a baby, and they name him Emmanuel. Why Emmanuel? Because this is the sign. It's as if Isaiah picks up a stick and pokes it in Ahaz's eye. And he says, you knucklehead, you turn to Assyria instead of God? Now I'm naming my baby God with us because that's who you should have turned to, God. Not the king of Assyria. God with us. Now, the reason I'm giving you the whole story about this virgin birth prophecy in Isaiah 7.14 is because I think there's an important lesson for us today. See, it's not just the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy in Jesus that we need to pay attention to. It's also the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy in the life of King Ahaz that we need to take to heart. Friends, how often do we, just like King Ahaz, how often do we turn away from God to satisfy our deepest needs? And instead, we look for our needs to be met somewhere else. How often do we look for our needs for security and support and satisfaction in life? How often do we look somewhere else? We, we depend on some modern-day Assyria, as it were. Maybe we look to our job or we look to our friends or, or we look to our recreational pursuits or to our shopping binges or to our grandkids or to our boyfriend. Instead of worshiping God, we worship and, de and depend on these other things. Yeah, even at Christmas, maybe especially at Christmas. That's, that's a bad decision, Isaiah would say, because the things we look to for our support, they are certain to let us down, just like Assyria let down King Ahaz. You know, Assyria eventually turned its guns on Ahaz. They didn't turn out to be the ally, the support, the helper that Ahaz thought he was getting in the deal. God demolished his two enemy armies that were attacking, but Assyria, who he made an alliance with, not only failed to come to his aid, they turned on him. What are you looking for today to meet your needs? Are you looking to God or are you looking someplace else? Isaiah says to us through this prophecy, trust Emmanuel, God with us. You get it? Good. Here's a second prophecy about a divine king. Okay, turn to Isaiah 9, so a couple chapters over from where we just read. And this is another really familiar prophecy uh, made famous by Mr. Handel when he wrote his oratorio called Messiah. Pick it up at verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. 
Now that you know the backstory of King Ahaz, you could well imagine that the people of Judah, they would long for a better king. They would want a king upgrade. God, could you give us a new leader? Okay, not this knucklehead who makes alliances with Assyria. And so God promises through the prophet Isaiah, yes, a king is coming, a much better king, a grand king. Now, is there a single as well as a home run, a, uh, an immediate as well as a grand future fulfillment of this prophecy? Yes, there is. Okay, in an immediate sense, King Ahaz has a son named Hezekiah, and Hezekiah turns out to be one of Judah's best kings in history. Okay, he's a godly man, he's a successful king, and so to some extent, he's a fulfillment of Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. But when we look at the language of Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, we say, no way is Hezekiah the home run. I mean, the language of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 is so grandiose. There's got to be a future fulfillment. Okay, he's revealing to us an even greater king to come. Uh, my, my wife, over the Thanksgiving uh, holiday, she threw a family shower for my daughter-in-law, Marianne. Uh, Marianne and Andrew are uh, due to have their first baby in February. And they already know the baby's going to be a girl. And they know this because of the reveal party. So you ever been to one of those? All right, so this is how it works if you're unfamiliar with how reveals work. Uh, today, Marianne goes to the hospital. She has an ultrasound done. The tech notes, this is a baby girl on the way, but she doesn't tell Marianne. She writes girl on a slip of paper, folds it in half, gives it to Marianne. Marianne doesn't look at it. She hands it to her best friend who's planning a reveal party for her. So the friend is gonna host it at her home. She gets this huge cardboard box she mounts it on her wall, and she fills it with pink balloons. Okay, and underneath the box, she, she puts two chairs. And Andrew and Marianne arrive for the party, and they're seated in the chairs, and they each have a string to pull. And when they pull the string, it's either going to be pink balloons or blue balloons. And they pull the, the, the strings, and down come pink balloons. It's going to be a girl. This, this is where you're supposed to say, oh, Okay. Yeah, I didn't think it was such a big deal either, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, I mean, it's okay when we learn about a baby's gender before it's born, but, you know, in contrast, look at what Isaiah reveals to us about this coming baby in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Now, this is over-the-top spectacular, okay? This is a big reveal, Look, look at the close of verse 7. He's going to be a king who will reign forever. Circle the word forever if you've got your own Bible. And, and then notice, go back to verse 6. Notice the four titles by which this king would be known. Every single one of these titles points to deity, points to his godness. So start with wonderful counselor. The word wonderful in the original Hebrew, you know, in English, wonderful means kind of a delightful. But in Hebrew, it means one who does miracles, one who does wonders. So he's going to be called miracle-working, all-wise counselor. Okay, second title by which he goes, pretty straightforward, mighty God. This baby's going to be the all-powerful deity. Third name by which he goes, everlasting father. I mean, th this was the name by which God often went uh, you know, God himself went in, uh, by in the Old Testament. He's the father. He's the creator of everything. You know, it's, it's interesting. On one occasion, 
Jesus is talking with his disciples, and one of them, Philip, says to him, hey, Jesus, just show us the Father, and that's all we need. And remember Jesus' response? He says, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. We're talking Holy Trinity here, right? Three, the three-in-one God of Father, Son, and, and Spirit. Fourth title, Prince of Peace. We all know that only God can bring about universal peace in this troubled world, right? Only God could pull that off. And so this coming baby boy that Isaiah prophesies about in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, he would be a divine king, not just a king, but God himself, a divine king, a king who has the capacity to bring peace to this troubled world as well as to our individual lives. Now, this prophecy, friends, about Jesus in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, it prompts me to ask you a question. Have you ever surrendered your life to Jesus as king? Have you ever surrendered your life to Jesus as king, as the one who rules in your life, as the one who sits on the throne of your life? Have you ever gotten off the throne and given it to Jesus? Maybe you love the Christmas story of baby Jesus, cuddly baby Jesus in the manger at Bethlehem. Maybe you love the gospel stories of a grown man Jesus in his earthly ministry walking around touching people and healing them. Maybe you love the story of Jesus giving his life on the cross so you could be forgiven the penalty of your sins. But what about King Jesus? Have you ever surrendered to the one who is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace? Is Jesus your king? Is Jesus directing your life by the authority of his word? He's not just a cuddly baby, a miracle-working, sin-bearing sacrifice. He's also King Jesus, the divine king. Here's a third prophecy. It has to do with an obscure hometown. I want you to turn to Micah chapter 5. Now, you may need the help of your uh, table of contents to find Micah, okay? Because it's it's one of those 12 short minor prophet books that show up at the end of the Old Testament. Uh, I don't have to give you a lot of historical background about Micah and his day because he was actually a contemporary of Isaiah. So you already know from Isaiah what was going on in Israel at the time. Micah arrives on the scene shortly after the northern kingdom falls to the Assyrians. So that happened in 722 B.C. Southern Judah has been watching. They've been watching the destruction unfold of the northern kingdom. Cities demolished, people exiled, carried off into captivity. And so the the people in southern Judah are wondering, hey, could this happen to us? I mean, what's to come of all those captives we've seen exiled from northern Israel? Are they ever going to return? Will their country ever be restored? And so Micah comes, comes along and he prophesies the coming of a great leader who would not only be a divine king, a la Isaiah 9, he would also be a compassionate shepherd. Get this, a compassionate shepherd, someone who would gather together broken displaced people, just like a caring shepherd gathers strayed sheep that have often become bruised and battered because of their own waywardness. And this divine king, this this compassionate shepherd would be born in the obscure village of Bethlehem, 
little village five miles southwest of Jerusalem, located in the Judean hill country, the middle of nowhere, more sheep than people in this locale. This is where shepherds would go to graze their sheep. Now, with that in mind, let me read to you from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Bethlehem, you, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Now, just stop there for a moment and try to wrap your mind around this one. How could a future ruler be from ancient times? See, that that ruler, when he arrives on the scene, he's going to have to be not only man, he's going to have to be God. Only God comes from ancient times. Which reminds us of something Jesus said to a group of religious leaders. John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus says to them on one occasion, you know your Old Testament, remember Abraham? 2,000 years ago? Well, before Abraham was born, I am. Before, Before Abraham was born, I am. Am. Jesus is the fulfillment of this Micah prophecy, pro- pro- prophecy of a ruler who is from ancient times. Now go back to Micah 5 and drop down to verse 4. Micah says, and he, this ruler, will stand and shepherd his flock. He's going to be a compassionate shepherd. Shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Listen, friend, if you are a busted up sheep today, and I'm sure there are a lot of busted up people within the sound of my voice, at one of our four campuses, maybe online, maybe you're busted up over relational matters or financial matters or health matters or vocational matters, This Jesus is for you. He is a kind shepherd. He's a good shepherd. He wants to gather you in. This shepherd who wants to love on you, one day he will physically return to this world and his greatness will then, according to the verse I just read to you, reach to the ends of the earth. Wow. But, But it all started in this little obscure village called Bethlehem. Now, now, truthfully, uh, Bethlehem wasn't totally obscure. Bethlehem had one claim to fame. You know what that was? Somebody famous was born in Bethlehem. King David. Okay, Bethlehem was, was an obscure town except for the fact that King David, Israel's most illustrious king, who reigned centuries earlier over Israel's golden era, the most famous, the most beloved king of all, David came from Bethlehem. He was the claim to fame. You know, it's, it's kind of like, uh, Bethlehem was kind of like Tampico, Illinois. How many of you have ever been to Tampico? Okay, almost no one. <laughs> it's less than 100 miles away, fewer than 1,000 citizens there, but it's the home, home place, the birthplace of a 40th president of the United States, Ronald Reagan. So now you know. So Ronald Reagan put Tampico on the map, just like David put put Bethlehem on the map. However, one day, an even greater king would come along. One who would really put Bethlehem on on the map. Dr. James Allen writes this about Jesus back in 1926. He says, Jesus was born in an obscure village. An obscure village. The child of a peasant woman. 
He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never owned a home, never wrote a book, never held an office, never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot in, in, in a big city, inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. In fact, while still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. And while he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth, his coat. And when he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Well, 19 long centuries have come and gone. This was, again, written in 1926. And today, he's a centerpiece of the human race and leader of the column of progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life, Jesus. Amen? Yeah. And yet born in this obscure village, Bethlehem. Here's a fourth prophecy about Jesus. A celestial birth announcement. Okay, we've been looking at prophecies about Jesus that date from the time of Isaiah and, and Micah, about 700 B.C. But now we're going to go back twice that number of years before Christ to the time of Moses, so 1400 B.C., and Moses recorded an amazing prediction about a celestial phenomenon, a star in the sky that would mark the arrival of a world-conquering ruler. So I want you to turn with me to the fourth book in your Bible, okay, the book of Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, chapter 24, and while you're looking for Numbers 24, I'll give you the backstory here. Israel has been captive in Egypt for 430 years, but God sends them a deliverer, a dude by the name of Moses, who leads them out of Egypt and to the promised land, a piece of real estate, the country of Canaan that God has promised to give them. But when they get to the border of Canaan, they get cold feet. They decide not to go in. They're not going to trust God. God says, trust me. You know, you're going to go in and you're going to conquer. And they say, oh, we don't think so. And so God says, okay, you could wander in the desert for 40 years until this unbelieving generation dies off. So it's now the 40th year of their 40 years of wandering, the very last year just before they, they actually do enter the promised land. And there's a king, a neighboring king, the king of Moab, who's a bit unsettled by Israel, the Israelites' arrival on the scene. And so he hires a mercenary prophet, a dude by the name of Balaam, to put a curse on the Israelites. Okay, he's worried. He's trying to cover his, his own tail. So he hires Balaam to curse the Israelites. So Balaam does his best job at cursing them. If you've never read the story, this is like one of the funniest stories in the Bible. Okay, three times he goes to a high place, a cliff, overlooking the Israelite encampment, and he tries his best to come out with a really good curse. But every time he tries to curse them, a blessing comes out of his mouth. See how it happens the first time, and he goes, oh, try again. Blessing comes out of his mouth. He tries it a third time. I'm going to curse these suckers. I'm getting paid for this. A blessing comes out of his mouth. And this third time, along with the prophecy, a prophecy about a ruler who would eventually reign over Israel and the world. Look at verse 17. 
Balaam says, I see him, but not now. Okay, this is distant future, 1,400 years away. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. Jacob's just another name for Israel. A star coming out of Israel. A scepter, a king, a ruler will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. And his prophecy, Balaam's prophecy, goes on to name other countries that are going to be conquered. And these countries that are listed here represent the countries of the then known world. So this is a prophecy about a world-conquering ruler, someone whose arrival on the scene will be announced by a star in the sky. Now, for hundreds of years before Jesus, Jewish interpreters said this is a messianic prophecy. Okay, this is a prophecy about God's promised Messiah, coming Savior, Redeemer, Rescuer. Now, fast forward 1,400 years to the birth of Jesus. Remember the story in Matthew 2 about these astrologers in the east who see in the sky a strange and brilliant star and they're enamored with it and they follow it all the way to Bethlehem, these magi. Get on their camels and they ride to Bethlehem where they encounter Mary and Joseph and the child Jesus and they bring him gifts fit for a king. Gold, frankincense, myrrh, You know, the star led them to Jesus. The star led them to Jesus. You know, God has been using special signs in people's lives ever since to point people to his son, the savior of the world. In fact, if you're a Christ follower here today, you can probably look back in your life and identify some of the signs, some of the prompts that God used to direct you to Jesus back when, right? Maybe it was a close friend who surrendered their life to Christ, and after they did this, their life so dramatically changed, you looked at them and said, hey, I want some of that from me. Where do you get this? Maybe it was an answered prayer that did it for you. You were never much of a prayer, but you were in dire dire straits, and so you lifted this prayer to God, not expecting an answer, and God came through, and you determined, I got to get to know this God better. Maybe you you were tangled in an addiction and you went to some recovery, some support group, and they said, you you need a higher power. And somebody told you, you know, the higher power is Jesus. And you turned to Christ. Maybe somebody invited you to be part of a Bible study or come to a service at a church like Christ Community or come to Christ Community Church. Maybe you came as a high school student through a house group or middle school. You came through Genesis. You followed the star, and the star led you to Christ. God prompted you to seek him by that star. You found Jesus. Let me say to you, you may be that star in somebody else's life this Christmas season. Think of that. It may be your invitation to one of our This Is Christmas shows. It it may be your invitation to one of our Christmas Eve services that leads one of your neighbors or one of your friends to Christ. I just want to say to you, be a star this season. Be a star. You get it? Good. Good. And by the way, if you're at the St. Charles campus, don't bring him to the early Christmas Eve Eve service that doesn't exist. All right? bring them to the new new times that we, we heard about earlier. Here's a fifth and a, a final 
prophecy I want us to look at today, a Satan-defeating redeemer. And I've run out of time, but I have to at least touch on this fifth prophecy because it will lead us into our celebration of communion today. I want you to turn to Genesis 3. Okay, it's right inside the cover of your Bible. This is the oldest prophecy about Jesus' first coming in the entire Bible. Okay, Moses recorded it, but the prophecy itself was made before Moses way back at the beginning of time. See, after God created Adam and Eve, he placed them in the Garden of Eden where they enjoyed this virtual paradise, unlimited access to God. But, but God asked them to obey one simple command. It was a test of their loyalty. It, it was a test of whether they would allow God to be the ruler of their lives or they would attempt to rule their own lives. And you know how the story goes. Satan, God's arch enemy, arrived on the scene tempting Adam and Eve to disobey God. And Adam and Eve fell for Satan's lies. They went their way instead of God's way. And people have been doing the same thing ever since. Every one of us. We go our way instead of God's way. In fact, in most cases, we don't, even, we don't want to know what God's way is. Now, unfortunately... Our habitual disobedience has horrible consequences. It disconnects us from God, and because God is the source of life, it disconnects us from life. And, and the result, the consequence, is death. The Bible describes it as spiritual death that begins on the inside of our hearts, a broken relationship with God. We've all experienced it. And that leads to physical death at the end of your life on this planet. And that leads, if the problem is not fixed, it leads to eternal death. Fortunately for us, God decided to fix the problem. And God sent his son Jesus to planet Earth that first Christmas. And Jesus' mission was to pay the penalty that our sins deserve. The penalty is what? Is death. This is why Jesus died on the cross. He took the death that we deserve to die. But Jesus didn't stay dead. Jesus rose from the dead, and he now offers forgiveness and new life to everyone who will surrender to him. Have you ever surrendered to Christ? You know, th this is the way that he defeats Satan, who wants to keep you in bondage to death, who wants to keep you under God's condemnation for your sins. And that victory of Jesus over Satan, it was prophesied way back at the beginning of time. Genesis 3 verse 15 records us. This is a prophecy, interestingly, that's not spoken by a human prophet. The prophet in this case is God himself. Okay, and God is speaking directly to Satan, and this is what he says, Genesis 3 verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, Eve, between your offspring and hers. He, her offspring, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So God predicts that one day a descendant of Eve, a human, will arrive on the scene. And this person would, would utterly defeat Satan, crush his head, although in the process Satan would do some damage. He would strike this human's heel. In other words, he would seriously wound this person. And God was prophesying about the day when Jesus would come to earth, born as a human, a descendant of Eve, and yet ultimately give his life on the cross for you and for me. But in doing so, he would crush Satan's head. He would defeat your, your mortal enemy. 
He would give you the liberty to make a decision now, today, if you never have before, to surrender to him as the savior and the king of your life, to be set free. Would you pray with me? In just a minute, we're going to celebrate communion. And that's what uh, communion is all about, Jesus' defeat of Satan. As we take the bread and the cup in our hands, it's a reminder that Christ had to die to purchase our freedom. And if you've never put your hope and your trust in him before, never surrendered to him, not just as Savior, but as King. Remember the divine King who has every right to rule your life. I invite you right now to step off the throne of your life and give it up to Jesus. Say, oh, Jesus, forgive me because of what you did on the cross for me. And Jesus, become the new ruler, the new king of my life. I give up the throne to you. And if you're a believer You know, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that communion is a time when we sort of re-examine our lives to see where we've drifted away from the Lord. We, We all drift every week, right? So we come to this place of communion, and as you hold the bread and the cup in your hand, let this be a renewal of your determination to follow Jesus with his help. Be washed over by his grace. Don't get stuck in your failures. Be reminded by the bread and the cup that Jesus gave his life for you. The price has been paid. There's nothing more you have to pay. Receive his forgiveness anew, afresh. Ask him for help to walk in righteousness in ways that please him. Lord Jesus, we give you this time of communion, this celebration, thanking you for what you've done for us. We pray in your name. Amen.